0: Hey dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming from San Diego, California straight to your brain hole. We are the precogs telling you the future. Anyways, uh, today we have a very special episode, our first interview ever with author Carrie Vaughn about her Philip K. Dick award-winning book, Bannerless, but you're going to hear a whole bunch about that. I have to make one announcement before we get started, and this is very important. In the last episode, we debated what was going to be the next book. What was Philip K. Dick's second book? Well, it was not The Man Who Japed. Anthony was wrong. Okay, we double-checked. I checked with people who were alive when it came out, and I also found a quote where Philip K. Dick referred to it as his second novel. That is The World Jones Made. So we are reading The World Jones Made for the next episode. So we suggest you buy the book. Uh, and read it. You can get it from Mysterious Galaxies here in San Diego on their website or Amazon, of course. Uh, we prefer you go to Mysterious Galaxies and support our local store, but as long as you read it, you could also go to the library or we've also posted links to an audio version on YouTube if you don't want to spend any money. Uh, but again, you should have a library card. You should have a library card. And most libraries have PKD titles. Although I couldn't find the man that Japed at the San Diego Library, I had to buy it. But that's okay. We like giving money to Philip K. Dick's family because we don't want them to sue us. So anyways, so if you're new to this podcast and you're just here for Carrie Vaughn, welcome. Uh we are a monthly Philip K. Dick podcast where we read one of his books in order of publication. I think you might have figured that out. Uh, but our next episode before that is going to, after this one is going to be Minority Report. We're going to break down the movie. So see you then. And now on to our interview. Hello, dickheads. I'm here with. Carrie Vaughn, the author of this year's Philip K. Dick Award-winning novel, Bannerless. And that is the novel we are going to talk about today. It is the first of Carrie's books that I have read. I will be reading more because I really enjoyed this book. But Carrie, why don't you introduce yourself and tell our listeners how long you've been at this and and uh, where you come from in your career?
1: Oh, well, hi. I'd, I'd be happy to talk about myself. <laughs> um, so, my name is Carrie Vaughn. I write science fiction and fantasy. Um, I've been at this quite a while. I started out in short stories, um, in publications like Weird Tales and Realms of Fantasy, um, you know, Lightspeed, Asimov, Science Fiction. Um, and then, uh, about 12 years ago now, my first novel came out. I started out in urban fantasy with a series of novels about a werewolf named Kitty. Um, and I... Written a little bit of everything, kind of across the board, um, especially in in the short stories. You know, I, I'm a novelist. I, I write novels, but I've always uh, kind of kept my foot in the short story world, and I really enjoy doing that. Um, partly because the short stories often become um, novel ideas. You know, I I will develop them and work on them. And Bannerless actually started out as a short story uh, called Amaryllis. Uh, that was first published in Lightspeed, and that story was uh, a Hugo finalist in 2011, mm. um, which encouraged me to write more about that world. It was kind of a big—the uh, post-apocalyptic, post-apocalyptic setting was a lot bigger um, than than one short story, I think, and it, it took me a little while to, to build it up into the novel. So I wrote several short stories and then uh, finally got the idea for the novel, uh, which turned into Bannerless.
0: Right. So these short stories take place in the same world, but they're not they didn't evolve into the novel. They're a separate story.
1: Yeah. Yeah. They're different characters uh, taking place at different times. Um, and yeah, it started out with me just uh, kind of thinking about this world and, and wanting to tackle different ideas. And short stories are really good for that, for for taking like one idea with maybe just a couple of characters to illustrate it. Uh, and you can really get concentrated and and, and tackle that one thing. Uh, it wasn't until I, I wrote a short story featuring Enid, who's the main character of, of the novel, um, as a detective, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as this world's version of a detective. So she's an investigator. And then I realized, uh, you know, the murder mystery is is kind of the perfect structure uh, for exploring uh, a world like this. Uh, you know, there's lots of post-apocalyptic novels right now. You know, it's an idea that's a, a little bit tired. I've kind of seen a lot of it. So, you know, how how do you do it differently? And for me, the Uh, you know, doing it differently was setting a murder mystery in the world. So the world then maybe, I don't want to say becomes secondary, but instead of having the book be about the world, the book explores the world through this lens of this very familiar story structure.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, we'll talk about the world building a little bit later. I have some questions specifically about that, but I think... Uh, one of the things that makes Bannerless a very different post-apocalyptic novel, and first of all, post-apocalyptic is my favorite subgenre of anything. Um, <laughs> so that's why I immediately was like, okay, I'm going to read that right away. Um, when I first heard about it. And what I think makes Bannerless different is the utopian setting of it and the mm-hmm. idyllic nature of the, um, post-collapse California. And mm-hmm. and so could you tell us a little bit about the creation of this setting and 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 you know what was your you know what was your political inspiration for this because it's a very political concept.
1: It it is and it has become more political since I started writing it uh, and it made writing the sequel very interesting because it it felt more relevant than it had previously. Uh, the, the the core idea is is this idea of you know a, a slow burning apocalypse, kind of the environmental economic apocalypse mm-hmm. that has happened there means that that people won't lose everything. That was mm-hmm. kind of my core idea. Is here here is a group of people who are choosing what to save, uh, mm-hmm. and and that are choosing to learn from previous mistakes, and so you know, these, these people are working really hard to save the technologies that they think they'll need, like particularly medicine, um, and renewable energy, you know, wind and solar power are big here, Mm -hmm. um, that their, their main concern is what, what if they based their community on making sure that everybody is taken care of?
0: Yeah. And that is one thing that was really interesting about the world building here is because you, you do have to slow down sometimes and like, wait, they don't have cars. (laughs) But they have implants, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, um, birth control implants, and they have solar, you know, solar power and these kinds of things, and and so yeah, it did make me slow down sometimes when I was reading the book because I went into it totally cold. Um, oh yeah. I read that it was post apocalyptic, and then I quit reading the back or the the back cover description so I could go in cold, and for that reason, I had no idea that. Um, how far in the future it was or, or, or where the technology was coming from. So I think the, the priorities of the people on the coast road was, was, was a really interesting aspect to the book for me.
1: Yeah. And part of it is a reaction to so much of the apocalyptic stories I grew up with in the eighties were the nuclear apocalypse, where the, the slate is wiped clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I love the Mad Max movies, but those worlds don't really make any sense. You know, it's a, uh, apparently just you know less than a generation on from the 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 board being wiped clean but it seems that everybody has forgotten you know everybody has forgotten what the what the world was like at all you know anything that survives even just a generation later is is in you know folk tales and mythology and i don't think that's what would necessarily happen that i think that there would be people who who would work really really hard to hold on to things like uh you know antibiotics you know growing growing your own penicillin you know there's There there are ways to hold on to the knowledge and I, you know, and, and granted, this this is kind of a very optimistic utopian vision, but what if you had a group of people who were very um, dedicated to doing that, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, preserving that the kind of knowledge that they need and, and, uh, and Enid thinks about this a lot that the time setting is I I wanted to make it far enough ahead that the last people who remember what it was like before are, are gone. So Enid's old enough to have met people who remembered what the old world was like, Um, Mm -hmm. but she's very much, you know, a person of the world that she's living in right now. So she's, she's, I see her as kind of a bridge is that, you know, she's had contact with people who who lived before, um, but she doesn't have any of those memories herself. So she, she she's, I think she also sees herself as kind of, you know, trying to tie those two worlds together.
0: Well, and, and in that respect, I, you, you know, this is a Philip K. Dick podcast and you won the Philip K. Dick Award. But the author that um, whose work uh, felt like much more of an inspiration of this book to me, and I could be totally wrong because I have no idea. But the author that it reminded me of in a great way was Ursula Le Guin.
1: Oh, uh, thank you. Thank you for that. Because, yeah, um, The Dispossessed. Yeah, I think was was the novel that I actually reread just because it, nobody writes about politics uh, better than Le Guin. I think you're writing about politics in a way that makes it look like she's not writing about politics. You know, she's very right. kind of stealthy <laughs> that way.
0: Well, um, you, you know, what's really interesting too, is that I just reread the dispossessed less than a month ago. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um you know, it kind of fit in a sweet spot for me there too, because, um, but the book that I think of in, in regards to kind of a, Utopia utopian california is always coming home by uh-huh. Le Guin and of course it's not as far in the future as is always coming home and not as as kind of wacky <laughs> as that book is and to me i think of the dispossessed as like kind of anarchism 101 and and always coming home as a master class <laughs> uh-huh. and what i really enjoyed about bannerless is that i i felt that um that tradition, uh, in reading banner lists. And I felt in my review that it's up on my blog, I, 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 you know, pointed to Le Guin fans that this is, this is a book that they can really feel good about reading.
1: Oh, that's really flattering. Thank you so much for that.
0: (laughs) Well, and I used to live in Portland, so I used to see Le Guin speak quite a bit and, yeah. yeah, and, um, uh, you know, I don't say this lightly um, that I think uh, Bannerless is definitely in that tradition. And, you know, there is a tradition of, of post-apocalyptic California, just California specific novels. Uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's three California's trilogy. It comes to mind and uh, Gene O'Neill's Cal wild books that, um, you know, this area of the world that we live in here in California has a very specific environment. I know you live in Colorado. Um did you have to do any research into the topography of California to do this story?
1: i, I actually have a lot of history in California. I was born in Sacramento. Um, you know my dad was stationed at Baylor Air Force Base early on in his Air Force career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I went to college in Los Angeles. Um, ah. So I spent you know a few years in Los Angeles and uh, plenty and I of time back <laughs> now and then. so I'm sorry.
0: Uh, plenty of time in California, then.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's an environment I'm familiar with, and I'm also, you know, what is it that people say about California being kind of a microcosm of the country as a whole? Um, you know, it's it's
0: certainly kind
1: of an easy place to to experiment with because, yeah, you you do have a lot of environments and a lot of different kinds of people.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I like that 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 there are all these novels that have kind of looked at this same area that are so different um you know Bannerless is so different from from those books right um Mm -hmm. and uh you know one of the things that i think makes this such an award-worthy book is that it takes you know settings that we've seen before and does really cool and original things with them so I, i definitely want to point out that i'm making these comparisons i'm making them because in very favorable ways. But I do think that the book is stunningly original and, um, and, and really, uh, breaks new ground in, in really positive ways. So that's one of the reasons why I, I really jumped on. I think I was halfway through the book when I sent you the, the email asking you to do yeah. this. I
1: think you haven't finished it yet. Yeah. Well, thank you
0: so much. Oh, uh, because I knew I, I felt pretty, pretty good about that, but let's talk about the actual, and you've, mentioned a little bit of of this but let's talk about the structure well no before we get to that i'm sorry i'm getting ahead of myself you you did talk a little bit about enid the main character and i think um enid uh she's a kind of a reluctant investigator that um she she's not your typical cop she definitely spent her time traveling around the coast road and having her experiences but her mentor tomas um kind of gets her into the idea of investigation and i think that her arc and then we don't want to talk about where it goes all the way to the end because we certainly want people to read the book but i think enid's position in this society makes her a really interesting window on the world could you talk more a little a little bit more about how enid sees this world
1: yeah uh yeah, there was one point when I was writing it when I realized that if this was kind of the traditional dystopian post apocalyptic setting, she would be the bad guy, right? She's the, the one going around, you know, tagging people who are breaking the rules and, and punishing them. Um and she's not, you know, she's not the bad guy in this world. She is somebody who, who is kind of looking at things a little differently. Um, yeah, the structure, half you know, alternating chapters uh, you know, tell her backstory. And that's part of what I I borrowed a little bit from the dispossessed is I really liked how that went back and forth. So you see the person that she has become and then you see how she got there. And, and part of that is, you know, I think she is a little hyper aware of the history and, and she is a little hyper aware of wanting to know why people do what they do and not just on an individual level, but why their, their culture as a whole does what they do. And, you know, particularly in the mistakes that people can make that caused the apocalypse that caused some of the the terrible things that happened to their society, you know, a hundred years before, 80 years before. And she's an explorer. Uh, You know, she's, you know, her title is investigator, but I think she's, she's also an explorer. She wants to see everything. She wants to meet,
0: you know, Mm -hmm. all of the
1: people she can. She wants to get those perspectives uh, because I think it, it helps her, you know, understand the world and, and, you know, understand things in a way that will prevent, problems from happening you know prevent another apocalypse from happening maybe Mm
0: -hmm. well and i really like that the back and forth uh structure of the book what it does is it sets up uh misdirection you know for the mystery and what it what it really does is it gives you're able to start the story off without um kind of the info dumps in the world building and and you're able to bring in the world building elements in those flashbacks. And I just, I thought that was really excellent way to, um, structure the book. Was that intentional to, um, to kind of backload the, the world building?
1: Yeah, a, a little bit, uh, because, you know, I wasn't, it wasn't just the mystery and it wasn't just, you know, the kind of the rules of the society and how they get broken, but, but Enid, you know, I, I, I I had been writing short stories, but I didn't think about writing a novel until Enid came along. And and she know, writers talk sometimes about the characters who kind of grab them and and come alive and want, you know, demand that their stories be told. And and that doesn't actually happen to me very often. You know, I think Enid is maybe only the second or third character that I've, you know, in 20 years of, of writing that has ever done that to me, just you know, showed up and and, and demanded to have more stories written about her. Uh, so you know, in that respect, from the writing standpoint, she's she's great to just kind of follow around and look over her shoulder.
0: Yeah, but... she's a great character, and her uh, relationships with basically all the all the characters and to the society really um, propel the novel in, in really cool ways. So yeah. um, I can see where. You know, for a genre that often gets maligned for not being character driven, um, despite how many like really cool ideas there are in this story, it is very character driven in the sense that Enid is a, a really excellent, you know, protagonist for the book. It's funny. Uh, I, this is a little thing. And, you do not we don't have to go into this great, great depth. But with a name like Enid, is Enid is a name that I kind of think of as as a name that you wouldn't see for young people these days it's it's a sort of a name and a lot of the characters names seemed kind of old-fashioned to me was that on purpose
1: kind of yeah and and part of that is is i i will often look to my own family tree to pick names and i do have a great aunt named enid Mm -hmm. uh so that's you know in the most superficial way that's where that came from but at the same time, names come back into fashion. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's been really interesting. You know, when I was a kid, they would do these stories on what's the most common name, and we had like five Jennifers in my class. You know, five Jennifers and three Michaels, which I think were the most popular names when I was in elementary school. And you know, when I was growing up, it seems like you would see the same names over and over again. And these days, you you don't see the same names. Like kids under 20 now, under about 20, 25. Um, Like our generation, when we went to name our children, it almost seems like we were reacting against, you know, all the Jennifers, you
0: know, Um,
1: know, all all the kids having the same names because, uh, yeah, there's a lot of names out there. And I I see a lot of, um, you know, my friends who are parents choosing more unusual names, Mm -hmm. you know, like Hazel. Is, is some friends of mine have a kid named Hazel, uh, which, yeah, strikes me as being kind of old-fashioned, but at the same time, it's like that's – it's a good traditional family name. Um, you're not going to have anybody else name that. And I, I see that a lot of just um,
0: – Yeah. for
1: whatever reason, reaching back into the past uh, for, for names or inventing entirely new words that nobody has ever seen before uh, for names. Um, so, yeah, I haven't done any, like, sociological – you know, investigation into that if that's just my own impression or if that's really a thing that's going on um, mm. yeah who who can predict it you know the other thing you know um, names that start out being male predominantly and then become female um, you know names like Courtney or Ashley um, which used to be you know strictly male names um, yeah I could go into naming <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a really huge fraught topic among writers what do you name your characters? So, yeah, I I did kind of make a decision to to go a little unusual and to go uh, to not Mm -hmm. use kind of the standard 20th century American names.
0: Well, Um, just to note that I noticed (laughs) that that was something that I I appreciated. So um, you don't have to pull out the book, but I've got it in front of me. And um, on page 61 is where you really introduce the idea of the Bannerless Pregnancy, mm -hmm. um, which is the title, (laughs) but is... Not as important to the plot as I expected in the beginning. So we can get to that in a second, but I also noticed that's where you, on that page, you're talking about one of the bannerless pregnancies and maybe we should talk about the concept of the bannerless banner pregnancy first. Would that, did that originate in the sh- short stories or was, is that introduced in this novel?
1: It came in the very first short story. Amaryllis. is that's mm-hmm. a big part of that story. Also, there there's a short story version of Bannerless that is also called Bannerless, and that's part of where the title came from. Is that we you know we sat down to trying to come up with a title for this novel, and and that one just was the punchiest, most interesting one. Um, mm-hmm. So I borrowed it from the short story, and the short story is called Bannerless is, is very much um, about that as well, and so that's been there from the beginning. And part of it was. So these these people are, are, you know, this is a community that's very concerned with resource management, with not using too much, with not producing too much, with not wasting anything. Um, you know, they they've survived an environmental and economic collapse that was, you know, caused by late capitalist excesses. So they're 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 trying not to do that. So you know, take care of everyone rather than accumulate all you can. And part of that is population control. Um, mm-hmm. You, know, you you can't just go and have as many kids as you want because that's uh, a strain on resources because we may not have enough to feed everybody then. So birth control is mandatory. Um, and households, you know, people tend to be arranged in households. You know, they come together to, you know, to, to grow food and, and, you know, manage their resources. Um, it's and a, so when a when non, households...
0: non-nuclear family, basically. Yeah, definitely non-nuclear
1: yeah. families, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so when a household has sort of, proven that they can take care of themselves and, and have the resources and can support, uh, you know, a, a new member, uh, they are awarded a banner, um, you know, by the, the community's uh, you know, organizers, by their, the committees. Um, and so the banner becomes this, this symbol, not just that they can have a child, but it's, it's
0: success. Has become
1: much bigger than that. Yeah, it's, it's a symbol of success. It's a symbol of status. It's that they, they have successfully managed their resources and they are successfully taking care of everybody in their household. So, you know, it's, it's sort of one of the unintended consequences. I'm not sure the, the founders of this society really intended it to be that important. Um, but it definitely, you know, people like trophies and they like kind of bells and whistles and they like, um, you know, getting a visible uh, you know, representation of, of their successes. And the banner kind of turned into that. Um, You know, so conversely, if somebody uh, decides that they are are wanting to have a baby without, you know, the status symbol of the banner, you know, that's that's just not allowed. That's that's uh, about the worst thing that uh, Mm -hmm. anybody in this culture can think of doing.
0: So with the um, there's a part here where the investigators are talking about the possibility of implant failure and how families are sometimes given a banner retroactively if the implant Fails, And we already talked a little bit about how that that technology is kind of there, that that's one that they prioritized. But what that led me to think and why I dog-eared the page when I was reading it is how much does the issue of the implants and the banners become kind of a flip of the reproductive rights issues that we see in our society now where – you know, women are are fighting for control of their bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is that something you intend to explore more? And I know it says Coast Road Book One on Goodreads. So I'm assuming you're planning, and you said you wrote the sequel already. Is that yeah. is that an issue you're planning to delve more into in the future?
1: A little bit. Um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of focused on the murder mystery structure initially with all of the other cultural you know, the issues in this society as peripheral to that and kind of exacerbating, uh, you know, the murder mystery issue as well. So the sequel is called the wild dead and it will be out in July. Um, but it's interesting that you use the word flip. I think that's the word that you use because it's the way I came at it is, you know, as, as a middle-aged woman with no children, um, you know, you, you sort of feel this pressure, to have children, <laughs> you know. Right. You know, I, I live in a culture where it, the default is that you're gonna have kids. And when when you don't, um, you know, it's changing a lot. You know, I, I did not feel the pressure that say someone of my mother's generation would. But it's still there, there's still, you know, you sort of get that side eye. It's, it's often the first thing that people will ask me in small talk, you know, do you have kids? And, no, I don't. And, and you can tell that sometimes people run out of questions to ask because they wanna talk about your kids and then you don't have them. So part of that was just really personal, wanting to construct a society where the default is not that everyone's going to have kids. You know, what if we lived in a society right. where the default was, you have to explain why you want children um, rather than explaining why you don't want them, which is, you know, our default now is, is you sort of have to come up with excuses as to why you don't. Um, and then this was, you know, for, for me, it was kind of a way to, to flip that, you know, on us here a little bit that that. You know, on the coast road, it, it's, it's assumed that you won't have kids. You know, it, it's most people don't end up having having their own children. Um, mm-hmm. You know, which is part of why they come together in households so that they can all, you know, raise children together. Yes, yeah, um,
0: so there's so there's yeah. there's an mm-hmm. excellent scene in the, one of the flashbacks where um, Enid um, meets a uh, family with multiple children, and like her horror is. It's a very small scene in the book, but it, it was really powerful to me. Um, one of my favorite moments in the book, actually.
1: Oh, yeah, she travels outside the coast road and meets some of the some of the people who aren't part of this culture. And yeah, it's like children everywhere. You know? <laughs> right. And, and that was just, you know, kind of a way to to make people think about their own assumptions mm-hmm. um, about. You know who has kids and who doesn't and how many is a good number so that's the other thing that happens you know even if you have a kid like the first question you get asked is well when are you having another kid and that Mm -hmm. happens until a family has about three or four kids at which point it's like oh my god stop having kids you know so we have these really embedded cultural ideas about you know what appropriate families you know quote-unquote appropriate families look like and that changes and it changes fairly quickly um, mm-hmm. You know, all of my grandparents have like five or six siblings, and then you get to my parents' generation, and it's like two. You know, and right. then you get to my generation where I I don't have any children at all. So, um, yeah. those questions interest me, and I know that there's huge political implications for the idea of forced birth control and population control. Um, mm-hmm. But it actually came from a really personal place for me, just in these societal questions about family size and who has kids
0: and why well my my wife and i don't have children children either and so i i totally i got what you were laying down there in this book so uh and i definitely uh understood it and it was really nice to read a book where there was a society where it was kind of like you know oh i guess we could have children (laughs) you know and and I think that there's a scene and I have the book open to um, uh, 130. and there's a, a part where they're talking about the concept that maybe this death that sets off this investigation. There's a, there's a man who's a handyman. He lives on his own. He's one of the few people that doesn't live in a city. And this is what kicks off the mystery is he falls and hits his head. And the question is, was he pushed? Was it murder? Was it not? That's what, that's the kind of the MacGuffin of the story. Right. But there's this part where they're all debating whether, Hey, we lost somebody in our city. Does that mean we have space for another, another kid? And what, what struck me about that is, is that that's not something that in our society that people ever stop and think about, like, you know, well, what effect will putting another pair of feet, another mouth on the planet (laughs) will have. Because we have mm-hmm. six billion people and, and people just don't think about that. And so it was really cool to see this society where like they're really talking the nitty gritty about how resources are used in, in, mm-hmm. in and I just thought that was really cool. But
1: Yeah, and that they, they need to have you know, the, the other issue that comes up there is uh, you know, crops and growing crops and, and using Land to grow crops, and that you know that that's finite. You know, some of those resources are finite, and they have to save some for future generations, which is maybe something we don't talk about enough in our own culture.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm really excited to hear details uh, um, on the sequel. Um, I will be first in line to be reading that one. I am I am now a fan. I'm now going to have to track down all the short stories. And that leads me to this question. One of the best examples of of the world building in the flashbacks was Enid's aunt Kath, who was the last person she knew who who um, was a child during the time before the fall. And she had she, Enid has copies of her journals, so she's able to read her journals. And um, there's a a really neat thing that her journal she has a bunch of like fairies and forest scenes drawn on the journal and her aunt had written fairies aren't or fairies weren't ever real <laughs> and i thought i i just immediately dog-eared that and thought it was a really excellent thing to say just word for word before you gave the first real details of how the collapse happened and we're and. 50 pages into the book before and we don't really need to know how it happened. Right. But that's where we yeah. hear that there is an epidemic of flu. Do, do the short stories contain more of those details? And was that an intentional warning for your readers? Like that fairies weren't ever real, like before you start getting into that stuff?
1: Well, it, that was, that was more thinking that, you know, someone like Auntie Cat is, is telling stories about all the things that they had then that they don't have now and then kind of maybe you know needing to point out that look we had things that weren't real back then too so right. uh, you know the line between what was real and what wasn't real I think could get blurred as as her stories of, of what things were like before kind of stop being memory and start becoming myth mm-hmm. um, so kind of segue here I, I wrote a short story about Auntie Kath and, you know taking place just a few years after uh, the things start to go wrong um, It's called where would you be now and it's on tor.com mm-hmm. if you're interested in looking that up So that's almost an origin story for the whole world Yeah, I could use a lot of shorthand because the, the post-apocalyptic setting is so familiar to us all now I didn't feel like I needed to go into that much detail You know people people understand it just like you know writing stories about vampires you don't really need to go into all the rules because We've got so much out there that people basically know what you're talking about. Um, and I imagine it as, as more of kind of a cascading failure that it's a little bit of everything. You know, it's, it's the environmental infrastructure collapse and, you know, one thing after another happens and then the epidemic hits. You know, we've had, you know, the, the, all the hurricanes that we had last summer and then the Spanish flu happens, um, you know, so you get to a point where you just don't have the resources and you just don't have the people to be able to come back from some of those and so this the slide becomes uh permanent. Um is is kind of how I envision that happening.
0: hmm So I, I see that um this book came out um it's a John Joseph Adams book and I'm obviously familiar with his work, heard him on, on uh Geek's Guide to the Galaxy many times and yeah. and um he's a, a really brilliant and smart editor. But um I'm wondering because you have this the Kitty Norville series, which is clearly very popular werewolf series. Um, I'm sure this is a bit of a left field book for some of some of your readers. Was there any trepidation of like? I mean, I guess you, you you've you've primed them with the short stories, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But but you write a lot of fantasy, and you've written the 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 the. The, the like the Mars books. And, and so I'm just wondering if, if going a little darker with the post-apocalyptic was, 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 um, was a, uh, any bit of a concern or anything? Like, I mean, I think it's great. I, I love it. So yeah. it's my nice stuff.
1: Yeah. That's a really interesting question because I, uh, you know, all of the conventional wisdom in publishing talks about branding and that you should you know stick to the same thing or you'll confuse your readers. And, um, you know, I kind of used to get pushback, like when I started doing things other than the Kitty series, and and that kind of went away. Um, so so yeah, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, concern, partly because I wrapped up the Kitty series. Um, you know, I finished it; the last book came out in, in I think 2015. So I was kind of ready to move on and do other things. Um, and and John. Published um, Amaryllis in *Lightspeed*. You know, he he was mm. he practically asked for the story, and that's uh. It, I I could say this is all his fault, except it's. I'm really glad that he asked, <laughs> so that I was able to write uh, some of these stories and then build on that. But yeah, it just it worked out, and and one of the interesting things is, you know, the the novel writing world is kind of concerned with branding and and you know not confusing your audience, and then nobody ever pays attention to short stories. So I've always been all over the map on short stories. And I would have people ask, well, are you ever going to write the science fiction novel? You know, the way that you write these science fiction short stories, are you ever going to do this? Um, and I've just been really fortunate that I've been able to do a lot of different things um, without the pushback that I think people would expect. And I think, yeah, there, there's, there are some rough spots because this is, I think, by far one of the darker things that I've written Um mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if that's from the post-apocalyptic or from the murder mystery part of it. Um, you know, that is something I need to think about.
0: I'm sure it's a little bit it, of both, but
1: a little bit of both. Um, and it's you know some of my favorite authors like you know, Le Guin for one. That you know, as we've talked about, um, you know, Ray Bradbury for another. My, my models when I was growing up and, and the kind of writer I would like to be always wrote a ton of different things. Um, so mm-hmm. that was a sort of took it for granted that I would be able to do that. And so I just did it. <laughs> um, and yeah, not my kitty readers are not all going to come with me when I do post-apocalyptic murder mystery. And and that's okay because there's a lot of readers out there who would read a post-apocalyptic murder mystery before they'd read, uh, you know, a long running snarky werewolf <laughs> series. Um, mm-hmm. So it all kind of balances out and, you know, I've, I've been doing this for quite a while now. And so I just kind of operate <laughs> on faith that, um, you know, if I write a good book, somebody out there will want to read it.
0: And I want to be clear.
1: Fingers that that keeps going.
0: Yeah, I want to be clear about something too. Um, I did not. I I watched one interview that you did, in, in up to this, but I really just read Bannerless, right? So I didn't do a ton of research. I didn't know that Ursula Le Guin was was a influence of yours. I just I got that from reading the book. And I say that because, as an author myself, if somebody picks up on my on my influences in a way like that, that I find that really flattering, and I I, I want to tell you that you did it. <laughs> oh, great. No, that's, you know what I'm saying?
1: <laughs> it, well, it, it's, just, it, it's great because, you know, yes, it absolutely was. You know, I, I modeled it a little bit on The Dispossessed, and... and, and
0: well it helps that I right, just read that.
1: Right, it's serious and yet personable and and if it if that came across, it means I I did something right. So that's yeah. very comforting.
0: Well it helps that I just read the dispossessed like less than a month ago. But isn't um, that funny? That's yeah. Serendipitous. Yeah, it's very serendipitous. But um all right, so now this is a Philip K. Dick podcast. You just won a Philip K. Dick Award. You live in Colorado where he was born. There is no wrong answer to this, but are you a Philip K. Dick fan yourself?
1: I am. I, I won't call myself an obsessive fan. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also buried here, by the way. Um, and then some friends of mine have been thinking that we ought to go out and try to find his grave. Um, so uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh,
0: mm-hmm. My co-host, Anthony, and I have already uh, discussed the idea of recording a podcast at <laughs> at his grave, yeah, which is kind of creepy. Yeah. But, um, um, but we'd have to get I mean, to Colorado.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a great place to visit. So, so one of the things that I think is great about your podcast is he wrote a lot of books. Like, I'm always kind of surprised. There's a handful that he's really known for, but then you look at his entire bibliography, and he was so prolific, um, mm-hmm. kind of shockingly prolific. Um, so that is quite a task that you have set up for yourself and I admire <laughs> that.
0: Um, well, well, I
1: am kind of slowly working my way through, uh, you know, I, I read, you know, do androids dream of electric sheep, um, you know, man in the high castle, kind of the standard ones. Interestingly enough, um, his backlist, uh, Dick's books are published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, which also published Bannerless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when the nominations for the, the PKD award this year came out, um, the editor who handles his book sent me a stack of Phil K. books, um, you know, <laughs> as a congratulations, which I thought was really awesome. So I've been reading some.
0: Hmm? No, that is great. Um, yeah, I'm kind of jealous. Um, but yeah, uh...
1: I've been uh, just you know over the last couple of months, I've been uh, you know kind of dabbling in those in a way that I hadn't before. I love the movies. I love that he's become an author, like the single most popular author in Hollywood, and. You know, it's kind of astonishing how that happened, and I, I, I find the way that Hollywood interprets his work so interesting. Um, you know, for better or worse. <laughs> you know. Um, right.
0: Well, you know, we've we've talked about that a, a lot um, off off mic, and because um, we're planning on doing, for example, we're doing Minority Report as our first movie breakdown episode okay, yeah. ne- next week, and we're going to read the story and then t- watch the movie and then talk about it. And it's interesting because what we've Come to When we did our first episode, we broke down Solar Lottery, his first book, and what we've decided we're going to do at the end of every episode is we're going to talk about, and we did this for Solar Lottery, is talk about how we would make it as a movie.
1: Oh, yeah. Who
0: would cast, who we'd have directed, and... Um, It's funny because even with Solar Lottery, his first book, um, my mind went to how do we make this kind of a paranoid on the run (laughs) type of action story like we get often with the Philip K. Dick books, because even though that wasn't the main focus of Solar Lottery, there was an ability to do that (laughs) by, by focusing on one aspect of it and, you know. For for me, um, it's really cool what you said about because cause we were the same way. We're we're big Phil K Dick fans, but we'd read, you know, Man in the High Castle, D- D- Droid's Dream, uh, Three Stigmata is one that we're all big fans of. Three Stigmata, of Palmer Eldritch is one that we all consider like his weirdest and best. Uh-huh. So we had read a lot of those, but by doing this podcast it was like an opportunity to start at the beginning and and I probably wouldn't have read Solar Lottery if we weren't doing this, you know? Right. And um but now that we're doing this and to, to kind of read it in order, it's it's gonna be really, really interesting. So back to to uh, getting nominated for the award. Let me tell you why I think it's a PKD award worthy book. I think the explorations of themes are very in line with what, um, Philip K. Dick did. And I know not every book that gets nominated is like supposed to be in the vein of Philip K. Dick. Cause I know there was one about like solar flares and I, that doesn't really sound like Philip K. Dick. But anyways. Um, the point is, is that I think that Bannerless um, really explores how it explores our society through science fiction. And that I think is what, uh, PKD was so good at. And so I really appreciated that about Bannerless, and what we think is really cool about um, Philip K. Dick is the ideas. Um, mm-hmm. He does do characters really well, but the ideas are so important for how they reflect our society. And 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 so the last pitch I would make to our listeners to to read Bannerless is that it is a novel of characters, yes, story, yes, plotting, but. The ideas in it are so potent that um, with all those other things added, it just, that's why it won the Philip K. Dick Award this year. And congratulations officially from us.
1: Thank you so much. <laughs> it's it's such a, it's an amazing list of, of books. You could go through all of the winners. It's uh, not sure it's quite sunk in yet to be part of that mm-hmm. that tradition, that history, because it, it's It's great. It's it's a great list of books, and to be part of that is just um, really humbling.
0: Yeah, and and, um, it inspired me to – I may – I haven't – I'm not going to lock this in stone, but I've been thinking about going back and reading all the winners um, in reverse because I'm the one that's the quickest reader uh, (laughs) of our podcast, so I read – couple books a week so it's a little bit easier (laughs) for me um because i'm a quick reader and i have an hour-long bus commute Um, and so i appreciate it like um i um i finished Bannerless on the bus and i slapped the book shut and i was very um you know i had like 20 minutes left on my bus ride and was kind of bummed that um i didn't have more so i'm really excited about book two so carrie um just to wrap things up um, Anything um, else you'd like our listeners at Dickheads to know um, about your career? What you got going?
1: My website is www.carryvon.com. Uh, as I said, uh, The Wild Dead will be out in July. Um, and I always have new projects going on. So uh, thank you all so much for listening.
0: All right. Thank you, Carrie. And um, for Dickheads, we'll talk to you next time when we're doing minority report we're going to watch the whole movie and uh read the short story and talk about it so see you next time dickheads